This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, for August 7th, 2020. There are new features in the new iMac, like the first 1080p FaceTime camera in a Mac, but is now the time to buy. The developer's app is accidentally shut off by Apple, and domain-bound codes for SMS are coming. Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast, veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern and Intego's chief security analyst, Josh Long. Good morning, Josh. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you, Kirk? I'm doing good. Hey, you want to get a new iMac? Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not so sure. What about you? There's a new model out, right? Well, funny you should mention that. That's exactly why I brought it up. Um, <laughs> I, I think I mentioned recently that my current iMacs, I don't know, getting on two and a half years old, and I was thinking of upgrading. And so they came out with this really interesting new 27-inch iMac. I have a 21 and a half because I downsized from the 27 the last time I got a new iMac because I don't need all that screen real estate. Um, but the 27 is, it, they've put a lot of stuff in it that's really interesting and it's really powerful. It can go up to 10 cores. And I mean, just think how fast I could do my email with 10 core processors, right? <laughs> yeah, like you really need a lot of cores for email and web browsing. Well, I'll tell you where I need cores for. Um, it's video editing and photo editing. Right. Um, it's when I'm editing podcasts, anything to do with audio. It's not that that's a majority of my work, but it does make a little bit of a difference. So I was thinking about this. I was thinking, okay, this would be a good time. But then I realized there were these really interesting rumors about a 24-inch iMac with a new form factor that's going to look a bit like the iPad Pro. I think the rumors are fairly um, on target. I don't know how reliable they are. But the fact that they didn't update the 21.5-inch iMac and only the 27 suggests that in a few months, that 21 is going to be replaced by a 24, and the 27 maybe a year later um, will be replaced by a 30-inch. And the the measurement here, 21 and a half to 24, is the, the examples we've seen of what this could look like would mean that the bezels, the black bits around the display on the iMac are much smaller. So you could probably put a 24-inch display in the current 21-inch iMac. So it, it's almost as if they're going to take their two sizes and bump them up. So 21 to 24, 27 to 30. And it's very possible that this would be the first desktop Mac with Apple's new chips. Hmm. Well, okay, but the new one that was just released, this new 27-inch iMac, still has an Intel processor. Yes, that's correct. It goes up to 10 cores. It can go up to 128 gigs of RAM. It's really getting very close to the iMac Pro. In fact, the iMac Pro, they dropped the 8-core model, and I think it starts with 10 cores. So the overlap is very close. Remember, the iMac Pro is what? more than two years old. Um, it's getting to be like the previous Mac Pro trash can that they sold for, what, three and a half, four years before replacing at mm. almost the same price with with older and older specs as time went on. Um, it looks like the iMac Pro was just a one-off and will eventually be replaced by a more powerful iMac running Apple's chips. Hmm. But okay, so if you were going to get the new 27-inch iMac, what would be the scenario where you would want to ha have an Intel Mac now, knowing that Apple Silicon computers are coming right around the corner? 
I have a friend who's a software developer, and he wants to buy one because he uses virtual machines to test different operating systems, so all the different recent versions of macOS. And as we think now, these virtual machines, so um, Parallels Desktop and VMware Fusion, may not be able to run on Apple's new processors, or they may not be able to run directly. They may have to emulate or translate. So today, when you run, I use VMware Fusion, when you're running an Apple operating system, when you're running Windows, it's just basically passing it through to the Intel processor that's on the Mac. But tomorrow, with Apple chips on a Mac, it's going to have to be translated to be able to emulate the Intel processor, and that's going to slow it down a bit. They did show in the WWDC keynote, it is possible to run virtual machine software on these new Apple Silicon Macs. And they showed a popular VM program that that was that was running, but what they didn't show was Windows or Mac OS running in a virtual machine. They showed Linux, which is like, okay, well, you can get lots of versions of Linux that run natively on lots of different processors. So what does this mean exactly? What are they trying to imply here um, that you may not be able to run Windows or or maybe that you have to get a an arm based version of windows we we just don't really know all those kind of details yet it's not very clear as far as the publicly released information yet right um one other thing that some people might like is the option to have what they call nano texture glass on the 27 inch iMac so this is um it was first uh, added on the pro display xdr and essentially it's a way that they i guess they kind of used tiny little sandblasting um, to avoid reflections. And if you're in a place and you work and you've got uh, problems with the lights behind you and over you that reflect off your Mac, um, you can spend 500 bucks to have a different kind of display. It seems like a lot. Um, but again, if this is mission critical and this is really essential for a work situation, then it's a good feature to have. One, one more feature for the Zoom era, it's finally a Mac that has a 1080p webcam. Oh, I like that. This is this is the first one, believe it or not. You know, it's funny because we're talking over Skype. We can see the quality is mediocre. I'm on an iMac. You're using your iPhone for the video. It's 720p. It's not a big deal. But when you do see someone on a video call with 1080p, you kind of feel inferior, don't you? Uh, <laughs> well, it, you know, it's, again, it's the Zoom era. And so I think Probably most people are used to seeing a little bit grainy video when you're having a video conference. But where it really makes a difference is when you're doing, a, let's say, an interview uh, for television where everyone is looking at you in 1080p. Everyone, Everything else is 1080p. And then you get somebody who comes on who's got a lousy webcam built into their computer. And, and it, it's just very noticeable and obvious. And it, it, this would be great to have 1080p cameras actually built in to Max. Uh, why, are, why haven't they been doing this already for years? I know, I know. And, and so it says something that um, the T2 chip enables powerful features like the 1080p FaceTime HD camera. Why would a special processor, which is a security chip, why would that be necessary to go from 720p to 1080? That doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, actually, that's a great question. I can't answer that either. Yeah. It also has what they call a studio quality three mic array. So it looks like they're really delivering a workstation for people working from home using Zoom. I think maybe the the T2 part of it has less to do with, oh, this is going to be better for FaceTime. And it has more to do with 
Um, now we're implementing some of the like facial unlock type technologies that are available on the iPhone. They do say, for example, that uh, face detection is one of the features in this new camera. Um, so it seems like this might be the first Mac that eventually will get a feature to facially unlock, you know, just face ID, just like you can on an iPhone. Yeah, so I was thinking of that. Um, I have a MacBook Pro that has a T2 chip. So if that was the deciding factor, then it would already be there. Maybe we're going to see it in Big Sur. But don't forget that it's not just the camera that does Face ID. It's those infrared things that do the depth mapping right. of your face. Exactly. And they, they, haven't, they haven't said anything about that. Well, that, that's what I kind of wonder, though. If they're putting a 1080p camera on this and they're calling out face detection in the Apple Newsroom article, then that sort of, it, although they don't, they don't say face ID anywhere in this, in this article, they, they almost imply that that's coming and will probably be available at some point on this Mac. Maybe in a later release of Mac OS Big Sur, they'll add that functionality in. As long as they've got the sensor technology that is needed in this iMac, then this could be the first iMac that has that capability. They're not saying it yet outright. Well, I mentioned it on Twitter and a fellow tech journalist said, well, maybe it's not for face ID. Maybe it's for animojis. And I'm thinking, well, yes, what, I mean, a $3,000 iMac has to be able to create an emojis. Of course, yeah. That, <laughs> what else would you be buying an iMac for? Let's have a couple of updates. We've got Garmin. We spoke about Garmin last week. They were attacked by ransomware, and there were a lot of questions as to exactly what happened. And we've got an article here on Bleeping Computer. Um, it says that it's confirmed that Garmin received decryptor for wasted locker ransomware. That's pretty confusing headline if you don't understand what's going on. Basically, they're confirming that Garmin did pay um, in order to uh, unlock their files that were locked because of this ransomware. Right. It's basically all but confirmed because how else could they get the decryption key? And the reported amount was $10 million, which, again, hasn't really been confirmed. Garmin won't say, yes, we paid a $10 million ransom because they're not really excited to make that information public. Um, but all, everything points to, yes, Garmin paid the ransom. It was probably $10 million and they did get the decryption key, um, because of it. And, um, so they paid the ransom, not such a great thing to do. Um, but, uh, I, I guess that means that they didn't have good enough backups or they didn't have confidence that they could easily and quickly restore their backups as, uh, you know, as well as they could just decrypt the, uh, you know, undo what the ransomware did in place. Although, you know, when you get your systems infected with ransomware, you're probably better off just, you know, starting that machine from scratch or reverting to a, an earlier, you know, if you've got a full image of that computer or, or server, you definitely want to go back to a point in time before that ransomware ever got on the system. Because now how do you know that there's not some other malware that got installed along with that ransomware? Yeah, some dormant malware. In other news, we publish our episodes on Fridays. And last Friday, just after I published the last episode, um, news broke about the great Twitter hack of 2023. People were charged. One was a 17-year-old from Florida. Another one was a 19-year-old from the UK and a 22-year-old from Florida. It looks more and more like this was just a bunch of kids trying to make some money. And yet, what they had access to, uh, it's, it's really surprising. 
It's incredible. Also, I, I don't think we really talked about this detail on the on the podcast, but another thing that came to light was that the way that they got this, you know, sort of God mode access to to Twitter was the attacker used some sort of spear phishing attack, um, but also there was apparently an admin password in a Twitter Slack channel that was pinned to the top of the channel. So anyone who got access to this Slack channel now had the God mode password. But Twitter says um, in an, in a an update of a few days ago, they mentioned that they have removed access from a lot of employees. It was reported that, you know, over a thousand Twitter employees as of earlier this year had the same level of access. And apparently they've significantly restricted that. They won't say how many people still have this level of access, but they have reduced it. And hopefully this kind of thing won't happen again soon. Twitter would look really bad if this kind of thing happened again very quickly. Yeah. Um, this week's Zoom zinger, it's not really Zoom's fault, but when the 17-year-old was arraigned, the arraignment was done over Zoom. And you know what? A bunch of Bitcoin hackers Zoom bombed it because the people who set up the meeting didn't have a password. I mean, seriously, guys, this is this is like legal events going on in a court. You got to know how to use the software. How hard is it to read the manual or to, you know, read some of the instructions? Or, hey, get somebody from your IT department to come over and just double check. You know, we've got a hacker on trial. Let's make sure that we've set up Zoom right because we've heard of Zoom bombing on the news. Or get a teenager to do it for you because they know how to do it. Okay, we're, we're going to take a break. Um, we'll be back with some more news. Uh, we've got a Google thing and a Apple automated mistake and more. You already know that Intego loves Macs. After all, Intego has been making world-class Mac security software since 1997. But did you know that Intego Antivirus is also available for Microsoft Windows? If you've got Windows running on your Mac, either in Boot Camp or in a virtual machine like Parallels, VMware, or VirtualBox, make sure to protect it from malware just like you protect macOS with Intego Security Software. Intego Antivirus for Windows is also a great solution for your friends and family members with Windows PCs. Download a free trial of Intego Antivirus for Windows today, and when you're ready to buy, use the link in the show notes for a special discount. Don't use Windows? Don't worry. We've still got a great deal for you. First-time buyers of Mac Premium Bundle X9 can get Intego's powerful Mac security and utility suite at an incredible 40% savings by using coupon code PODCAST20 at checkout. Intego, makers of the best protection software for Mac and now for Windows, too. Okay, we talk about Google regularly, and we came up with our witty um, expression, Zoom Zinger, and today we want to talk about a Google gotcha. I came up with that. If you don't like it and can suggest a better idea, go ahead. I, I like this headline in the Independent, the British newspaper. Google accidentally enables home smart speakers to listen in on everyday house sounds. Accidentally. Accidentally. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I'm sure it was a complete accident. It sounds like what's going on here is that Google has been experimenting with certain things like, uh, of course, there's wake words, right? You know, you can say, okay, followed by Google, or hey, followed by Google, uh, to activate these Google Home devices. And 
what it seems like was going on is they were experimenting with detection of other sounds. Um, for example, a glass breaking um, or, or other sounds that sound like alarms. And the idea behind this probably is that they're thinking about using Google Home devices to detect potential break-ins and things like that. But this experimental technology apparently made it into production devices. And um, that's not a, such a good thing. That shouldn't be happening. I know it's sloppy. I have a friend who he's got a summer home and he's got an alarm system in the summer home. And one of the things the alarm system does is it listens for a smoke alarm. So the particular high-pitched loud tone of the smoke alarm, and that'll trigger the alarm system and send them a notification, a warning. So this is not an uncommon feature. And apparently Amazon's Echo speakers have a feature called Alexa Guard that's similar. Um, so the feature itself is actually quite useful. However, it's the accidentally enabling that I find quite humorous. Right. Yeah. This sort of thing should not happen by accident. <laughs> Speaking of accidents... Automated mistake by Apple kills all of a Mac developer's apps. Now, I saw this on Twitter um, as this was happening yesterday. A developer named Charlie Monroe uh, particularly has an app called Downy, which is the ultimate video downloader for Mac OS. Um, he woke up to find that he says, he says, I had lost my business. Full inbox of reports of my apps not launching. And after not long, he couldn't get into his Apple developer account. Users would get a dialogue when they launched an app saying it would damage your computer, you should move it to the trash. It turns out that somehow he got erroneously flagged by automated processes as malicious and was put on hold. Now, the problem here is not just that, okay, we think you're malicious and there's a problem, we're going to have to look into it, but that they essentially shut down his business, told all his users the apps were dangerous, um, damaged his reputation in many ways. This has gotten a lot of coverage in the Apple press, but what's really worrisome is that it doesn't take much for this sort of accident to happen. Yeah. And this has always been a concern, all these, you know, sort of related things to the Apple uh, app approval process. Uh, there are automated portions of it. There are also manual reviews that take place. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's always possible that something like this is going to happen. Um, this is the first time I'm aware of um, a, a supposedly perfectly legitimate, no malicious code app getting flagged by Apple as being malicious and where users are actually being told this app is going to damage your computer. So uh, I, you know, I definitely can feel for the, this developer, uh, what a horrible thing to have happen. And interestingly, these apps are not even necessarily in the Mac app store. He's distributing these apps outside of the Mac app store, which uh, you know, Apple can still shut down apps, even if you're not just putting them into the Mac app store because they're still signed by his developer ID. Right. So they have a specific certificate and they go through a process that Apple calls notarization, which kind of validates them. So when you launch these apps, even if you didn't get them from the Mac app store, your Mac is still checking. Now, usually what happens um, when you install an app for the first time, this depends on the settings in the security and privacy preferences, whether you allow apps only from the Mac App Store or from Mac App Store and authorized developers. What I'm thinking is that here, um, the fact that all of a sudden Apple's checking the certificate that you've had the app running, um, it's probably a slightly different dialogue than when you launch it for the first time. Um, there is a way to actually launch an app 
that's not signed and, and the, the, the dialogue explains what to do. But I think in this case, it was the fact that the apps were on and then Apple like sent the kill switch and made them look like they were dangerous. Right. Um, so he had to recompile and re-notarize and resubmit all his apps um, with a new certificate, which is a lot of time. On the other hand, he's getting a lot of publicity. So there's that. <laughs> <laughs> there's always something. Okay, so we were talking about a story here before um, the show, trying to figure out exactly what this means. And I remember we mentioned this back around WWDC, um, but iOS 14 is adding something called domain-bound codes to make SMS one-time passcodes more secure. So you go to login, we'll use Twitter as an example. Um, You have two-factor authentication enabled because everyone has two-factor authentication, right? We hope so. Thank you. We hope so. So let's say you're going to log in with Twitter and you're getting a six-digit code via SMS to your phone. Um, Now, you can use an authenticator app, but if you're just doing it by your phone, you're going to get that six-digit code. If you're on a Mac or an iPhone or an iPad, when the message comes in, Safari is going to offer to automatically put those six digits into the window in order to enter your code. Now, there are all sorts of possibilities of you being tricked by um, going to phishing websites and getting codes that they then put into another site. So the change here is actually quite simple. If the SMS has a domain name in it, so for example, at twitter.com and then the code, macOS and iOS will only autofill if that domain matches the domain on the web page where you are. But it's really not that much protection, is it? Well, right. And this is a new feature, by the way, that's supposed to be coming in iOS 14 and macOS Big Sur. So Kirk walked you through the normal scenario. So here's a potential attack scenario. So think about this from a little bit different perspective. Imagine that you go to, and let's say that Twitter.net is a a phishing website that's imitating Twitter.com. And so you type in your password, maybe you, you got tricked and you clicked on a link and, and it turns out it's not actually Twitter, but you haven't realized it yet. And so you type in your password and now it prompts you for your uh, six digit code. Well, if you get a text message that's, uh, that says that it's from at twitter.com uh, and, and it has a six digit code, it's not going to offer to autofill that for you on Twitter.net because that's a different domain. And so um, the idea here is that basically if that website is waiting for you to give them your six-digit code so that they can turn around and give that to the real Twitter website and log in as you, stealing your second factor credential, um, then they won't be able to do it as easily because now that autofill prompt is just not even going to happen at all because the domains don't match. But me looking at my iPhone and getting the six-digit code and thinking it's not autofilling, oh, because it's broken again. Okay, what's the code? I'll type it in myself. Yeah, exactly. Stupid Apple. Oh, man, this autofill thing didn't work (laughs) this time. Oh, well, I guess I'll just go copy it from that text message. And that's Uh, definitely something that could happen. And so I guess maybe the way that this makes you more secure is that it, it it could set off a little red flag where you might think, Oh, that's weird. It didn't prompt me to autofill. And so maybe something is going on here. 
So it, so if you're on a website and you're getting a, a code by SMS and it doesn't autofill from iOS 14 and macOS Big Sur, then be careful. Look carefully at the text message, check the address of the website where you are, be very careful because as long as you know that autofill should work and if it's not working, that's a flag, then you need to be aware of this. Right. And and again, just to reiterate, this is something that is specific to Safari. So if you're using some other browser on your Mac or on your phone, um, you're not getting this prompt and this autofill message necessarily anyway. This is a Safari feature. Yeah, it's a shame. At least on iOS, they could probably um, set it up so it works with other browsers. I don't know. Maybe they, well, they don't have plugins. How could they do it? I don't know. There must be a way to do it. It would be more difficult on the Mac. Okay, last story, and this is one of these things, it's like, here's a story and it can't be fixed. So there's a new unpatchable exploit allegedly found on Apple's secure enclave chip. Um, we had one of these a while back, was it a year or two ago? It was called, um, it was called Checkmate, spelled C-H-E-C-K-M number eight, very clever. I always like the branding of these things. And essentially it affected Apple chips between the A7 and the A11 Bionic. So what is that? Up through the iPhone 10? Is that it? Right. Yeah. The iPhone 10 and iPhone 8 and 8 Plus. Those are the the latest models that run that processor. Right. So if you have a, a an iPhone as later than this, you're okay. The secure enclave is a special chip that handles encryption and, and things like that. And if someone can get into that, um, they could potentially... Um, get access to your passwords, all your your data. Uh, of course, they need physical access to the phone to be able to do this. Right. So, I, really, the takeaway from from this, um, and it, it gets very complicated when it comes to like the details of how this sort of exploit could be pulled off. But the the important thing to know, like you said, is that uh, this requires physical access. Um, you have to actually have the phone in your possession to exploit these vulnerabilities and to be able to uh, try to get data off of a device using these vulnerabilities. So um, the important thing to know here is if you're the kind of person that maybe because of your job or or if there's some some reason that somebody might want to take a device from you and get access to the contents of your device – uh, then you want to have at least an iPhone XS or a later model iPhone. Um, don't use an iPhone 10 or 8 or any earlier model of iPhone. Um, so that, that's really the takeaway. Um, so far, these vulnerabilities have not been made to work with newer models. Um, they have some additional technologies that make them a little bit more secure. That's that's the takeaway. Yes, there's a new vulnerability, but it still really affects the same devices that were already vulnerable anyway. Okay, just one last thing that we didn't mention. Um, Apple had their earnings call early this week, and they did announce that the iPhone 12 was going to be delayed by a few weeks. Um, this seems to be taking it into at least early October, if not later. Uh, we don't know yet if this is going to affect the release of macOS Big Sur, Um the, the the two operating systems aren't always released at the same time. Some years ago, macOS or macOS 10 was released like a month after iOS. Um, at other times, they were released closer together when you have features that work on both operating systems, like handoff and continuity back in the day. So we don't know if this year um, macOS might come out earlier than iOS. Um, they certainly won't release iOS 14 before the new iPhone. At least they've never done that. 
Um, maybe they will. Who knows? In any case, um, things will be delayed. And I guess even the actual launch week is going to depend on the situation, the COVID situation at the time when they're getting ready to announce it. Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting point, too. <laughs> this is uh, the first iPhone launch during a pandemic. So I guess uh, there may not be uh, such big, you know, queue lines outside of an Apple store this time around. But well, they have a very good online store. It's very efficient. Um, all, all I'm curious about is whether so here I'm on the iPhone upgrade program and you have to physically go into a store to exchange your phone for a new one. Whereas uh. in the States, they just do it by mail. I have a number of friends who do that. Um, I would assume they're going to change that here because I'm not going to no Apple store. I mean, those <laughs> places are so crowded. That's the last place you want to be. But we'll see what happens. I'm sure Apple's going to do everything they can to sell as many iPhones as possible. Yep, absolutely. Okay, Josh, until next week, stay secure. All right, stay secure. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. And if you'd be so kind, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software, intego.com.